Well, today we have come to um, the end of our journey through Second Corinthians, and as I was kind of uh, reflecting this week back over that journey, um, that journey started in May when nobody else was in here, and it was just me preaching to the air and the camera, pretty much. So uh, to say there's been a little bit of change between then and now might might be a bit of an understatement, but. Uh, but it's a journey that uh, for 20 weeks we've been going through the book of 2 Corinthians. Uh, I, I hope that this journey has, uh, has caused us to exalt our God and to worship Him. I, I hope it has it is challenged us to, to live lives of obedience and holiness by the way of God's uh, strength and His power within us. Uh, I really think it is a, it's a great thing to, to take a book of the Bible and, and, and study it and, and discern what, uh, what God can teach us through it, what he teaches us about himself. I, you know, there's great theological truths that come through study, the study of Scripture. But as we come to the end of, um, of this book this morning, I, uh, one more time, I want to remind us that this was originally a letter written by Paul to a group of believers in the city of Corinth in the first century. It was a letter which addressed a specific situation within that church. It was a letter that, that provided opposition to specific false teachers, false apostles that had infiltrated the church. And it was a letter which Paul hoped would lead to very real changes within that specific church body. And so I, I want us to kind of keep that in mind again this morning. This was a letter to that church body. I think we will be reminded of it as we, as we look at this last chapter. Paul takes everything that he had written up to that point, and he kind of puts a bow on it by clearly and directly calling the church to respond in a specific way. And, and so we'll see that as, as we go through this morning. Um, who here has, has ever had a job in sales? Anybody, just put your hand up if you've had a job in sales before. I, I briefly had a job like that when I worked at a, uh, a sporting goods store um, when I was in college. My pay was not commission-based, thank goodness, um, but, uh, but we were expected to, you know, help convince people to, that they should buy the products that we're selling, and, and, and I say that I'm thankful my pay wasn't commission-based because I just wasn't real good at, at perhaps the most important part of sales, closing the sale, that, ju that just, it wasn't my thing. I didn't mind talking with people, and I could generally explain the product to them and answer questions that they had, but, you know, ask me to, to nudge that customer to take the final step towards purchase, and I just, I just struggled in that area. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a skill, I'm, I'm sure, that can be learned, but, um, but as I was then and, and as I stand before you today, that is, that is just not my strong suit. It's just not. Um, and it's kind of interesting because in many ways, as I was reading through chapter 13 in 2 Corinthians, it's almost like Paul's closing the deal. He's closing the deal with the church in Corinth. You know, he's wrapping it all up and he's like, all right, it's time to act. It's time to put all of this 
into motion. I mean, he's given them plenty to think about in the previous 12 chapters. He's given us plenty to think about in the previous 12 chapters. Now it's time for the rubber to hit the road. We get to, we get to closing, if you want to call it that. So let's look at chapter 13 this morning and, and uh, see how Paul brings it all home with the church body. He says in verse 1 of chapter 13, This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before, and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He's not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you, for he was crucified in weakness but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Now, I, I don't know if firm warnings or even threats, if you want to call it that, are, are strategies they teach you for closing a sale, um, but that's kind of what Paul employs as he closes out the letter here. I mean, he's not pulling any punches. He's giving it to them straight. He told them, again, he reminds them he's going to be coming soon. He's been there twice already. He's preparing for his third visit. And, and as things currently stood with the church in Corinth, his third visit wasn't going to be a pleasant one. You know, as things stood, it was shaping up to, to be very unpleasant. Paul mentioned at the end of chapter 12, he's fearful that there are, there are people in the church who've been unrepentant regarding sin in their lives. Now, if, if sin was no big deal, Paul wouldn't be warning them about what they could expect when he comes to town next. He'd really have no reason to confront them because of those actions. But the truth about sin, which has been true since the very first sin in the Garden of Eden, is that sin is a big deal. It is consequential. There, there's, there's, there's outcomes, there's consequences to sin which, which are unpleasant. Not a, not a message our culture likes, not a message that culture probably likes. It's not a message that our culture believes necessarily, and you can maybe argue the same um, for, uh, for the church in Corinth in the first century. You know, you think about our own culture here, uh, you know, the, the belief is that the only standard that matters is the one that I find within myself, right? The only measuring device that, that should be used to gauge my actions is me. That's, that's pretty much what we're taught. I determine what's right. I determine what's good. I determine what's beneficial. But the standard for our lives against which everything is measured is not found within ourselves. It's not true in our culture. It wasn't true in the first century. It's, it's never been true. That, that standard is found above ourselves. If we want to be honest, it's found in God. That's the standard. And anytime we fall short of that, we've missed the mark that's been set out for us. We sin. And because the mark that's set out for us is, is congruent with all that is good and all that is right, it's congruent with God himself, we miss that mark pretty often, don't we? 
I mean, all we have to do is, is look at ourselves and we know, I mean, we know that, that there's sin. We know that there's this nature within us that leads us into sin. Anytime you look at a young child who has not been taught what sin is, hasn't really even ha doesn't have kind of a mental grasp of what right and wrong is, but they know, right? There's something within them. And so the, the problem that Paul saw in the church at Corinth was that they were missing the mark again and again. They were sinning again and again, and they didn't seem to care. They didn't seem to care about it. We, if you remember back in 1 Corinthians, uh, we're even told that they were proud of themselves. They were proud of their sinful actions. The, the very things that Jesus died on the cross to offer forgiveness for and cleansing from, they were things that were being pursued by the church and celebrated by the church. And so because Paul was a fellow believer, it broke his heart. It broke his heart to see sin treated in that manner. But as an apostle of Jesus and as the one who planted this church and, and has responsibility for this church, Paul was compelled to give a strong warning about that situation. He wasn't just sad and heartbroken about it. He warned them about the current state in which they, they would find themselves. You know, for all the talk about weakness that went on in chapter 10 and 11 and 12, um, man, Paul warned them to be ready. He warned them to be ready. Once he arrived in town, he was not going to spare anyone. He wasn't going to overlook any sin. He, he, would, he would justly address each situation that he found there. In other words, you know, church in Corinth, you, you want an apostle who's bold and strong, you're going to get it. You know, if you continue in sin, unrepentant, this is how I'm going to have to come to you. And, and he compares his coming in strength with Jesus himself. We look at uh, verse, verses three and four. Four especially. It talks about Jesus was crucified. He was crucified in weakness, but and he probably appeared defeated in that moment, but he now lives in the power of God, shown to be perfect in him, primarily through his resurrection. So Paul would say, Jesus, it looked like he was in weakness, but in actuality, the power of God is living in him and through him. And Paul, likewise, was judged by the church to be weak, to be defeated, but Paul is saying, no, I live in the power of God, and, and that power is going to be shown on my next visit if, if nothing changes here. And so he gave them a fair warning. He, he drew their attention to their sin, and he warned them of the judgment that, that lay ahead. And I would argue that in so doing, in those first four verses especially, as Paul warns them about sin, in doing that, Paul showed them grace. He showed them grace. He could have simply ended the letter after chapter 12 and, and just showed up later on and, and dropped the hammer on them. Like, all right, we're going to deal with this now. But, but he didn't. He warned them about what would happen if nothing changed. And, and that warning in and of itself, I would say, is a, a gift of grace because it provided time for the church to hear it and then respond to it. It provided them time. You know, as Paul has said in earlier passages and, and as he's going to say again in the coming verses, he loves the church body. He doesn't want to come to them 
in judgment. He doesn't want to have to do that. He longs to come to them in peace. He longs to come in joy. His warning was, was this loving gift of grace so that hopefully he could come in that manner, come in peace, come in joy. And I would say within that is a great picture of how God works in our lives. He shows us grace, doesn't he? When it comes to the sin in our lives. And I would say even more so than Paul showed here. God shows us that grace. He doesn't want to come to us in, in judgment in response to our sins, but he will if it comes to that because he is a just God and he will repay sin according to what sin deserves. And the Bible is clear just as the church in Corinth was going to see Paul again, we will see Jesus again. That, that, that day is coming, either, either after our death in this life or if we're still alive at his second coming, then we'll see him then. But, but we will see him. That, that next visit, if you want to call it that, will happen. And in God's love for us, he has warned us that that day is coming and that sin will be judged I mean, Paul himself wrote about it. He wrote about it in, in chapter 5 of this book that we've been studying. He said we're going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul warned the church in Thessalonica so that, uh, that that day was coming, so that they wouldn't be surprised when it did come. We've been given warnings all throughout the Bible as a loving gift from God, a gift of grace from God. God is not mean and overbearing because he warns us about our sin. Has anybody ever tried to paint God in that, line, in that type of light? You know, God's pretty mean if he tells us that we're sinful. I would argue God is actually quite loving in that he warns us about our sin and about the current state that, that we find ourselves with our sinful nature. The Bible tells us so much about who, about who God is, how God is, wor is at work in this world. The Bible also tells us so much about who we are, about the different ways that, that we fall short, the different ways that we miss the mark and fall into sin. You know, the passages in the Bible which, which primarily highlight the sin in our lives, they are just as much a display of God's love as um, the Psalms of Comfort, for example. It's just as much a display of God's love. You think about about the opening chapters of Genesis. God's warning to Adam not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil was just as much a display of his love as the creation of Eve. They're both displays of God's love. We don't usually think about it that way, but they are. You know, some people attempt to make God more loving by, uh, by ignoring or, or downplaying or, or even cutting out the passages of Scripture that speak of sin. And I would argue doing so actually makes God less loving, not more. If we remove the warnings that are given to us for our own good, we are creating a God who is less loving than the actual God who exists. Now, I, you know, I, I do think we need to be careful how we apply this principle, especially in our relationships with others. It, it, this isn't free reign, I don't think, to just unload on a person and point out every sin in their life and, and say, well, it's because I love you and God loves you that I'm, you know, I'm pointing out every little thing. You know, 
we shouldn't ignore sin, right? We shouldn't pretend it doesn't exist, but, but we ought not bludgeon a person either, right? To ignore sin leads to complacency, to, to, to bludgeon a person regarding sin can, can lead to a place of despair. And, and neither is what God seeks, right? What God seeks in our lives, I, I think what Paul sought for the church in Corinth, what we ought to seek for ourselves and for others is personal examination. That, that's what the warning would hopefully lead to, personal examination. Look with me at verse 5, what Paul goes on to say. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. A, a, a proper reception of a loving warning about sin should lead us to a place of, of examination of ourselves. Paul's not trying to be so harsh that they reject him, and you know, he's not trying to be so soft that they blow him off. He's, he's being firm because he wants the church to examine and, and to test themselves to see if Christ really is within them. Now, if we're honest, we probably don't like the word test, right? That word might cause us to, to sweat a little bit. Um, I, I'm, I'm in my seventh um, seminary class in the program that I'm taking, and this past week was the first test out of, for the first midterm out of any of those seven classes. Lots of papers and projects, but never a midterm. I had one this week, and, and if I'm honest, it's not the most pleasant situation, you know, taking a midterm test or exam. You know, the, the picture of a test that I default to is usually a picture in which I'm, you know, I'm judged to see if I live up to a certain ideal. You know, I'm graded based upon my worth according to that ideal, which is the right answers to the test, isn't it? And so we might be tempted to to apply that type of thinking to what Paul is saying here, that, that this test determines whether or not we pass the examination and, and earn salvation, that would be a mistake. That, that, that's not what Paul's driving at here. The, the testing Paul encourages the church body to undergo is not one in which a person tries to prove themselves to God by, by measuring up to his perfect standard. That, that's not the test. Rather, the, the church body is encouraged to discern their situation by examining themselves. They, they've, they've been examining Paul. That's kind of the foundation of this whole book. They've been examining Paul and kind of putting him under the microscope to determine whether or not Christ is truly in him. Now Paul's kind of turning the tables and say, you really need to examine yourselves. You know, you've been so concerned about me and who I am, and if I match up with these false apostles and all of this, you need to examine yourselves. You need to examine yourself and see, are you truly in Christ? You know, I think Paul recognized that this group of people in Corinth consisted both of those who were in Christ and some who were not in Christ. I think you recognized that. It's, and it's the same today, right? It's entirely possible to belong to a church body and yet not belong to Christ. And I'm not trying to get us to doubt our salvation here, but, but that is the reality, that you can, you can belong to a church body and yet not belong to Christ. 
Some in Corinth were participating in the life of the church body, but they were not participating in the life of Christ. And, and, and you know, no, Paul never says here that he himself is going to come and give the final judgment re regarding whether in Christ or not in Christ. That, that's, that's not Paul's judgment to make. Jesus says in Matthew 7, you know, he warns us not to judge others. Doesn't mean we don't give loving warnings regarding sin. We've seen Paul do that here. But it does mean that we're not the final authority on who is in Christ and who is not in Christ. Uh, you know, we shouldn't act like that authority belongs to us because it doesn't. Really, the only person who knows who is in Christ is Christ and that person themselves based upon the truths and confirmations that Scripture gives to us. Those are really the only two for any individual person that knows whether or not they are in Christ. And so because of that, I, Paul says we ought to examine ourselves we ought to examine, he was encouraging the church to do that. We ought to examine ourselves. You know, just, just because we attend a church service, either in person or online, or, or even just because we have our name on a membership role, doesn't mean that Christ is in us. You know, to be in Christ is to have Christ dwelling within us. And to have Christ dwelling within ourselves means that he's doing his work within us. He's doing his work of transformation in our lives. You know, I, I would say God doesn't dwell within a person and just hang out there for the rest of that person's life. It's kind of, that, that would be painting the picture of God as a bum, right? That's what a bum does. They move in, plop down on the couch, and, and that's it. That, that's not how God indwells his people. He dwells within them, and he comes in and gets to work. He gets to work restoring, transforming us. Now, you know, that doesn't mean that we'll never sin again, right? That the, the work in us won't be finished until heaven, but it does mean that, that sin is recognized for what it is, and, and both we and God agree that it's gotta go. There's gotta be restoration and transformation that takes place there. So the presence of unrepentant sin, which is what Paul is, is zeroing in on here, the presence of unrepentant sin ought to be like a, a warning light flashing on the dashboard of our lives. If there's unrepentant sin in our lives, it, it ought to alert us to the fact that something is not right within ourselves. And we've been there with the check engine light in the car before, right? We kind of ignore it and hope it goes away after a while. It's no big deal. Maybe if I just don't look at it, it'll be fine. This warning light cannot be ignored. When the warning light of unrepentant sin flashes, it, it must be addressed. We need to respond to that. And, and here's how Paul wants us to respond. Verse 7. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things, that while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up 
and not for tearing down. Really what Paul's talking about here is, is repentance. He doesn't use the word, but he, he does everything but use the word. He wants them to repent. And I would say that there's two common misconceptions about repentance. I, I, I think the first misconception is that repentance is a one-time thing that takes place when we first put our faith in Jesus Christ, when we first become a Christian, that, that, that repentance is part of that initial step. And, and repentance is indeed part of that initial step. It, it's a necessary component of salvation. But repentance is not uh, one and done in our lives. It's never meant to be that way. Repentance is meant to be an everyday common attitude that, that permeates our lives as believers. And, you know, because we, because we struggle to live out our salvation in a fallen world, we, we will find ourselves stumbling in sin once again. And, and when that happens, we have to go back to a place of repentance before God. You know, and it's not, a, it's not that our salvation hangs in the balance. It's not, that, it's not that there's this fear that God is going to void our salvation. It's that a natural outcome of salvation is repentance. It's a desire to repent of sins. To lack that desire, right, to, to reject repentance is a warning light. It's a warning light that something is seriously wrong. And it's not just that initial time in our life, it's, it's every day after that. If I ever wake up and there's ever a day in my life that I do not desire to repent, that's a warning light in my life. So repentance, it's not, it's not just a one-time event, it's a day-by-day -day attitude. The, the second misconception about repentance is that it's just solely a change of attitude. It's solely a change of belief and, and that's it. And, and again, it is that when we repent of our sins, it is a change of attitude. It, it is a, a change of belief. We are agreeing with God that sin is missing his mark, that there is something destructive in nature about sin. So we do believe that and that is our attitude. But but along with that change of attitude, there also has to be a change of action. Repentance is both of those, a change of attitude and a change of action. And so, so repentance, you know, if you were to kind of picture it, it's, it's more than just walking in one direction and then stopping and then turning around. That, that's not full repentance. Full repentance is then walking back the other direction. It's not just a belief, it's also action in our lives. And, and, and that's what Paul's saying here. He's desiring to see this in the lives of the people in Corinth. You know, he, he doesn't pray in verse 7 that they would just believe what is right instead of what is wrong. He prayed that they would do what is right rather than do what is wrong. True repentance in their lives is, is what he's hoping to see. The, the restoration work that God is, is doing in our lives isn't just a restoration of attitude, but it's also a restoration of action. And again, you know, uh, repentance displayed in our actions, uh, or sorry, a lack of repentance 
displayed in our actions is that warning light. It's a warning light that, that there's something seriously wrong. Doing what is right will never secure salvation for us. We'll never earn that through doing what is right. But right actions in our lives that flow out of God's work within us help us examine ourselves. They help us to discern whether or not Christ is within us. I, I would say that, that those actions are a visible reality of the invisible reality within us. The right actions help us to discern the invisible reality of God dwelling within us. You think about the fruit of the Spirit, right? I mean, even the phrase, fruit of the Spirit, one is visible, one is not visible. The fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, those are visibly seen in our lives as God does his work of transformation within us. And those visible displays point to the invisible reality of the Spirit dwelling within us, the Spirit working within us. The visible helps us to see the invisible. And, and as the Bible also makes plain to us, it's this invisible Spirit within us that's a, that's a, it's a seal. He's a guarantee of our salvation through Christ. And so what Paul says here, in essence, is repentance will show itself through action along with attitude. It's what he desires to see within the church. You know, when we, uh, when we hear warnings about sin and, and you know, the, the challenge to examine ourselves and then, and then respond to that uh, sin uh, with repentance, we'll find that God's work of restoration is carried out within us. We'll see it happening. You know, kind of going back to that warning light, whatever is wrong under the hood is restored by the great mechanic, if you want to call God that. I don't think Paul used that phrase. He used great physician and good shepherd and things like that. Paul didn't drive a car, but I think if Paul did drive a car, great mechanic would have been a, another apt title. That God, he restores what's wrong within our lives. He fixes us. And when he does that, it leads us to a place of reconciliation. It's been a theme throughout Paul's letter and this is what he really wants to see happen. This is the end goal for Paul. This is what he desires for the church in Corinth, that through this work of God in their lives, through the redemption and restoration that takes place, they will come to this place of reconciliation. Look at verse 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. These words in the closing verses, especially verse 11, I would say that those are, that's both a charge and a promise to the church. It's a charge and a promise. That he charges the church to pursue or carry out those things, to rejoice, to aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace. He, he encourages them and charges them to pursue that. But we all know 
just like Paul knew, just like the church in Corinth knew. Those things don't come about under our own power. We, we don't get there by ourselves. Just like climbing that mountain that we talked about a few weeks ago. You, we can't do it in our own strength. We're not able to create this reconciled reality on our own. It's only as we come before God in repentance, in weakness, you might say. It's only when we come before God in, in repentance that God's power is shown perfect within us. Because it's, it's that power that restores us. It's that power that reconciles us in so many ways, reconciles us in our relationship with God, our relationship with, with uh, others, our relationship with all of creation, our relationship with ourselves. It, it, it's God's work that brings reconciliation in all of those areas. I mean, as Paul would say, it's the God of love and peace who, who does that within us. That's what Paul desires to see in the life of that church. That had happened in Paul's life. He had experienced it. Again, he hoped that it would happen in the lives of the church. And, and, and I think as we read that now, that, that's God's desire for us. That we would, we would experience that, that restoration, that reconciliation that comes about through God's work in our lives. I, you know, I know I said earlier, uh, I'm not real skilled in closing the deal. Um, I'm going to give it a go this morning anyway. Why not? Um, God, God has warned us about sin. I mean, he has. Uh, if we read scripture, we can't get away from it. He encourages us to examine ourselves in regard to sin. Uh, we're, given, we're given warnings that, that unrepentant sin is, is an indicator of a problem. And and, and God longs that we would repent of that sin and come back to him. I mean, that's what he desires for each and every one of us. So I would encourage us to do what Paul's asking the church to do here and just examine ourselves. Examine ourselves, see what might be there. If that examination turns up sin that hasn't been dealt with, then, then let's, let's deal with it. Let's, let's come to God in repentance come to him in that attitude of, of weakness, really, in our repentance, and, and then we can receive the work that God has done, the work of Jesus upon the cross in response to our sins. We can receive that only when we come to him in that repentant uh, spirit, repentant attitude. And as we do that, God's going to do his thing. He's, he's going to restore us He's going to reconcile us. It's maybe not always quite in the way we think it should happen. It's going to be a journey that's got ups and downs in it, but as we continually return back to him, he will continue to do his work within us. However long our lives last in this life, and then it will get to that point of completion where we'll be in eternity one day, fully restored, fully reconciled. I mean, what a day that's going to be. But it starts, it starts with repentance. We, we can't sidestep it. We can't avoid it. It starts there. Would you stand with me? Let's, let's give, give praise to the God who inspired this great letter that Paul wrote to this church body. God, we give you praise for 
for these words that we've been blessed to dwell upon these last 20 weeks. Thank you for the challenge of them. I thank you for the truth of them and uh, even even the, the truth of the words that, that points out sin. I truly do believe that that is a gift of grace and love that you've given to us. And God, would you... Would you not let us sidestep repentance? God, would you hound us? God, would you soften our hearts? Whatever it takes that we would come to that place and accept you into our lives to do the work that you do in us. God, we give you worship this morning. We, we love you because you do that work within us. We are, we are quite broken. There's, there's just no way around it. In our sin, we are as broken as can be, and yet you can and do restore us completely. And so we thank you for that. God, for anyone here this morning that's, that does that examination and, and finds sin but, but uh, doesn't see a need to repent, God, I pray that you'd work there, that you'd do a mighty work there, that you'd soften hearts. God, if that's me, then, then start with me and do it there. God, I never want to get to the place I don't think I need to repent. Would you protect us from that attitude? Keep us humble and reliant upon you. We give you the glory. God, in your name we pray. Amen.